I just had an absolutely fantastic, massively educating conversation with Jody Bell. Now, Jody Bell is on her way to a PhD in cognitive neuroscience, has an honors in psych and as well as a degree in chem and psych. So this woman is fantastically educated and well studied in the field of neuroscience and mindfulness. Interesting, right? So she's actually the only one in a university that is uh, taking neuroscience and focusing it towards mindfulness, which is fantastic. There's not enough uh, research yet uh, to date, uh, in my opinion, in this field, which is why it was such an exciting and exhilarating conversation to have so we could talk about what research there is so far um, in a very, uh, very summarized and simplified way so we could make it digestible and of course simplified so that we can um, actually understand what was going on right <laughs> so, um, really we did our best to not use too much terminology and I continued to try paraphrase and summarize as much as I could uh, within the wealth of knowledge that Jody has which is absolutely incredible so um, yeah tune in as we dive into the brain science uh, the nervous system science of what actually happens during stress of what happens during anxiety and depression in terms of the brain, in terms of the nervous system, in terms of stress, and then how we can reverse it, how we can reverse engineer it so that we can come to a place of more calm, peace, and acceptance. And Jody actually dives into some studies that have been done on certain practices and techniques and what that actually does to the brain in a positive light. And she also speaks about her studies on dementia, uh, which is all as well very, very fascinating as well as Alzheimer's as well. So yeah, you can tune into that. And yeah, I'm very excited to share this episode with you. We will for sure be doing another episode someday on neuroplasticity, as well as some other fascinating things that she's been done, doing a lot of research around as well. Before we started the actual conversation around neuroscience and mindfulness, Jody and I actually delved into some conversation. And then, uh, yeah, if you wish, you can cut straight to the chase of the neuroscience if you skip a little bit further ahead. But if you're keen and listening to our chats, then yeah, tune into the start. Let's do it. I never realized until, you know, maybe a few years ago that how blessed I am to be a guy. I'm like, oh man, being a guy sucks. Like, I wish I was, <laughs> you know, um, oh no, I never wished that I was a woman. But there's definitely <laughs> aspects when I was a really shy um boy growing up or even a shy man um, as I got into you know later teen years early mm. adulthood um huh. about like um man like I was like um uh I was frustrated at the fact that I had to be the one that would go and speak to the woman like you know like, <laughs> little things like that I'm like man woman a bit easy like I have no I'm idea like, obviously boy, you don't know yeah, shit yeah, like. exactly, exactly um like even on the social aspects like I know that there's so many I'm a lot more aware now and um yeah. about like the aspects of um, you know, like, um, women on that end can feel like, um, like they don't want to, um, like they're cornered in a way where they don't want to hurt the guy or, mm. um, or even ways where they get so, so constantly, um, abused, um, or so constantly, um, talked to or annoyed or like, mm. um, and it can get quite frustrating and annoying. Mm. Um, and, uh, sometimes it can make them even feel like, they're just a piece of meat, if that yeah, makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which is um, so you, like flip the lens. dehumanizing in a way. Yeah, yeah, and like um, yeah, there's yeah, definitely interesting like um, uh, 
yeah perceptions that can come from that side as well so mm. it was like interesting to see it from like the guy's perspective then after now speaking to a lot more women and then also having um an opportunity as well to be in that space especially yeah. when i was um over in the states like um yeah californians absolutely love the kiwi accent so ah. it was definitely a benefit but at the same time it was definitely interesting seeing that side um and yeah having an experience of what that was like mm. as well um yeah so that was yeah definitely an interesting way to sort of get an idea of what it's like to be the on the flip side yeah yeah i think it's getting less uneven now especially yeah. with the like gender fluidity fluidity and like sexual orientation fluidity it's like there is no the man does the talking the woman does the listening because even totally. man and woman is a it's a spectrum too you know like we kind of i think those boundaries are starting to come down which is amazing it's a lot more acceptable to just think of it as it's just people communicating it's people getting to know each other you know devoid of sexual orientation yeah. or like gender orientation or you know it's it's just human beings interacting and i think that's I, i've noticed it's a lot more like that now which i think oh, is totally amazing yeah like um a few even a few years ago i, I feel like it would have been uh it was also as well like um an age thing I, I feel like as well in a way but like i would have been less likely to be approached by a woman um mm. a few years ago um now it's you know almost like a norm <laughs> thing um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, i'm not talking about me specifically yeah. but i just in general like i would see a lot more often like um yeah a woman wanting to approach this guy yeah, that they actually yeah. might be attracted to you yeah. know which is really cool to see yeah and i think that um yeah that, that definitely gives me um a lot more hope as well for the nice guys out there yeah because like um there was like a lot of like the nice guys almost too nervous to um you know put themselves in a position mm. where they're going to approach a woman you yeah. know it's like this like the fear of the rejection with yeah. those nice guys I have, I know, because I was one of them. <laughs> um, yeah, so. Now the girls are like, they're both like a nice guy. Yeah. I can go chat to them. Yeah. And same with like women approaching women. Like, I have a few lesbian mm. friends and they're like, cool. it is so much easier to find a girlfriend now mm. because I go out to a bar and it's not like unusual for a girl to come up to me being like, um, you're gorgeous. I don't know if you're straight or gay, but can I buy you a drink? And it, they're like, I am gay. <laughs> this oh, is great. Wow. You know, but like, it's That's nice cool. that it's <laughs> a normal thing yeah. to have. Uh oh, <laughs> so oh we're okay. the wrong pipe. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. <coughs> uh, I do that because I talk too much. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's too much. I think it's the pace you're speaking at. Yeah, like, yeah God, you can't swallow in between. <laughs> yeah, oh, maybe blush. I know I talk too fast. No, no, yeah, there's no such thing as talking too fast. But um, uh, well, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> You're like, this is Jody's world. Yeah. <laughs> there's a thing. <laughs> I had to go to speech language therapy for what? talking. Yeah. What do you mean? I don't even know it was a thing. Yeah. Okay. Well, usually speech language therapy is for people with aphasia, so often like older adults who okay. have like swallowing difficulties or talking difficulties. Okay. <clears throat> Key pause. <laughs> <clears throat> Example. <laughs> yep. Um, and so when I was younger, about 14 ish, 15, 16? Yeah, right. Younger, um, eight years ago, because uh, I did a lot of talking in day-to-day -day life. Um, I did a lot of musical theatre, so a lot of singing. Um, I was also doing band stuff with my brother, um, so using my voice a lot. Um, I got nodules, which I don't know if you've heard of, but they're essentially like calluses or blisters on your vocal cords. And so um, what would happen is if like, I'd wake up in the morning and I couldn't talk, it'd just be air coming out, essentially. Which was very aggravating, especially so for someone like me who likes to talk. Um, oh, and so, so I had to have an operation uh, where my vocal cords were paralyzed and I couldn't make a single sound for four months. And so I had a whiteboard 
that I had to use to communicate. You were kidding yeah. me. But I had to use like non um, verbal communication and so if I wanted to talk to someone I have to like yeah. touch them so they could look at me so they could like mouth read. Um, and so I learned a lot about how yeah, to grasp attention. Big learning curve as well in terms of um, learning. Um, I guess there would have been a lot great. Um, you would have had an opportunity to in a way, in a way be put in a place where you'd extend the space between stimulus and response, mm. um, like unconsciously, obviously, mm-hmm. but that would have given you a lot of opportunity to shift the way you'd approach yeah. certain things, which is real interesting. Well, I couldn't, yeah, verbalize. Yeah. So if someone was saying something that I strongly disagreed yeah. with, I have to sit with that feeling yeah. and just be like, uh, yeah, yeah. read my notes. I couldn't write yeah. fast enough. Yeah. Um, I got, I did get an exemption though to have my phone at school. And wow. so I was allowed to text yeah. to communicate which was great cool. um but yeah and so i had to have speech language therapy to learn how to talk mm. again essentially and a big part of that which she noticed was i spoke so quickly that essentially when i have when i had pauses between words or sentences my inhales were so um harsh that it just essentially just dried out my throat Whoa. um and then when it's dry it's kind of like how any callus kind of builds up yeah. it's like tearing away at the skin um, drying up and all that kind of build up over time and so yeah that was a big that was a big part of That's so interesting like, yeah, wow well, I had no idea that was a thing yeah. Um, yeah yeah thanks for sharing that yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 do you mind if I'm any other stuff that was shared like I don't have to keep it in but do you mind no go oh, for really? it yeah, yeah it's totally fine oh cool yeah because awesome. yeah, like I feel, I feel like this is like all great stuff yeah uh, yeah it's like yeah i'm sure i'm sure that there's going to be someone on here at least you know that has had some sort of Similar issue around experience. that yeah 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 um oh man it's so fascinating though um yeah now i now i get what you mean when you say yep there's actually such a thing as talking too much <laughs> yep, yep there really is yep they put you under yeah. and they paralyze your vocal cords yeah. and it's like cool you're not talking now yeah. for the next three months it's like great yeah <laughs> there are consequences wow i, I, I don't know if this will um uh surprise you in a way or anything but um uh kim knows because she knew me back then mm. um and for those listening as well because i haven't even done the introduction for jody yet but um which was, yeah yeah we're, oh, we're i'm sorry yeah, no no this is great like um i just <laughs> yeah that's what i like about this so <laughs> hit the record button and go um oh, okay. but um yeah for those that don't know kimberly bell who was on here as the nutritionist and nlp um <coughs> practitioner as well um this is her sister um oh. <laughs> jody who's a um, who's studying a PhD in cognition neuroscience, by the way. Um, she also has an honors in psych and a, uh, degree in chem and psych as well. So yeah, we have a very studied person here. I'm very excited to dive into some really juicy stuff about cognition, about mental health, about how focus and mindfulness uh, can impact mental health as well. And just really understanding the brain a little bit more in as much of a simplified way as possible but coming from a very uh, intellectual background as well. Um, so it's going to be very interesting to be able to dive into that from that space because most people that um, generally people will be speaking to or people will hear on this, these sort of podcasts will be, um, they'll be studied in it, but not to the depth of you know a PhD or to the depth where they've um, collected a whole lot of data on a lot of literature. You know, It'll be more like they've heard other people speak about it or they've had teachers speaking about it. But they haven't, you know, been really deeply studied on it. So that's what's really exciting about this. Yeah. 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 Um, so, um, yeah. Basically, what I'm saying is, Kim will know this. Like, um, I used to speak a million miles an hour. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Probably, 
um, either as fast if not faster. Um, I'm I'm not even lying. Um, I um, this is when I was twenty two. I remember I found a old story of me posting a story on Instagram, and I was speaking, and I think I fit about what I'd say in about a minute now into a fifteen oh second snippet, goodness. just going. <laughs> Maybe that's why yeah. you can understand me. Yeah, because <laughs> most people can't. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Oh. yeah, and um, I think that I was lucky as well because I was um, when I flew and um, over to America, and I lived in America for a while, especially California, like the like dude, like <laughs> you know, they're a little bit slower. <laughs> Um, and I was living with this, um, this guy who was like this, um, you know, playboy millionaire sort of like guy. So he'd talk like this, like, yeah. Hey, Kiwi, Kiwi, <laughs> what do you reckon? <laughs> what do you reckon about this? You know, like, that was sort of like <laughs> oh. the way he'd speak. So like, it was real interesting having that. And then constantly as well, asking him to, Hey, Kiwi, I don't understand you. <laughs> What'd you, you say? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I'm like, oh, sorry. Yeah. So I'd, um, repeat, I'd have to repeat what I said a lot. And I'm like, oh, okay, maybe it would just be better if I slowed down yeah. and you know, just build a habit. And then, um, of course, as I delved into the mindfulness world, mm. everyone's, you know, a lot slower. So I was learning to become slower. Yeah. And like, that just really slowed me down. Um, the only um, negative, well, it's not really negative, but the um, trade-out is that it's not as interactive for the Western audience because Western audience like something that's fast, you know, fast yeah. captivating. Like, totally. I want all this information quickly, like, yeah. you know. Um, so it was real interesting having that coming back from Bali and then over this last year and a bit, I've been adjusting the way I actually present. So I've sort of gotten, increased my intensity with how I present. Um, even though during that time I was actually slowing down Mm. and almost seems a bit boring in a way when I just speak like, yeah, yeah, like as if if they're doing a meditation or a game. Yeah, because then people will fall asleep. Yeah, Yeah, exactly, exactly. But no, it's like, yeah, trying to captivate a bit more so i would love to start um because you've already shared a little bit about um yourself which is great <laughs> <laughs> <That's an interview. laughs> yeah um but i'd love to hear a little bit more about uh what your background was like a little bit about growing up and how that um led you into studying psychology and then eventually neuroscience and what got you interested in that so just sort of starting early for us cool yeah. okay well um, I've always loved, uh, I guess, the counselling side of things, so I've always wanted to somehow get involved in helping people, um, particularly around mental health. I found that growing up, friends were always quite drawn to me to come to talk to about their problems, and I like to problem solve with them. Mm. Um, and so when I was deciding what to do at university, um, I thought psychology would be a great fit um, with my initial intention of starting psych was to be a clinical psychologist. That's why I did it in the first place. Um, And coming into my third year, um, I actually took a little bit of a detour. So I spent um, my last semester studying uh, a human neuroscience paper. Um, And in that, we were learning a lot about Alzheimer's disease and dementia. Um, and I became really passionate about that actually, um, because I came to understand a lot about memory and how pivotal that is to who we are as a human being, um, how we manage our emotions, how we, uh, facilitate decision-making, um, for anyone who, um, has had to care for someone who's had dementia, um, or Alzheimer's disease, 
um, it, you will know the, the burden that it has on the, the family, but also watch that individual lose their sense of self. Um, and uh, for those who don't know, Alzheimer's disease is uh, the most common type of dementia, um, uh, which um, is mostly characterized by uh, memory loss. Yeah. Um, and this starts with um, loss of day to day things, so your kind of your short term um, memory. So, um, so is that like damage to like the hippocampus or yeah? Yes, right. okay. yeah, hippocampus, big key player yeah. um, in that. And that actually is something to um, hold on to because that's very relevant to the mindfulness literature. Yeah, so I've heard. Yeah, so um, the, the more I learned about Alzheimer's disease and the more I became interested in our, our um, memory system. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, its importance and its role in, yeah, um, I guess overall well-being and also our sense of self. Yeah. I think without memory, you kind of have to ask a question, who are you if you have no memory? Yeah. If in a moment-by-moment moment basis you're, you're rebooting, if you have no memory of the people in your life or the communications that you've had, um, you know, that affects your sense of self. And then in the same breath, your kind of immediate or working memory, um, this allows you to operate on a moment-by-moment mm. moment basis. Um, and so that helps with yeah things yeah. like also for those that are listening and hear scratching and barking it's yeah. because there's our little pup who's trying to get into the into the place and we've also got I didn't realize that Jess was still here <laughs> watching this coming I'll let her in I'll let her in there you go they've there got go, FOMO man. yeah exactly yeah um, yeah super fascinating okay so because of your interest in Alzheimer's and dementia. Um, that propelled you in that direction and then as you started learning a little bit more yeah um, you got interested about sort of the nitty-gritty details about how yep. it's cultivated so okay. um yeah towards the end of my degree i then had a complete change in direction and i was like i don't want to do clinical psychology i want to learn more about i want to do i want to do research yeah. um because i want to i want to help people and yeah. i thought that doing research on alzheimer's disease and um would help me get there so i uh embarked on my honors year in psychology and in this year, I um, upskilled in using EEG, which is electroencephalography. Yeah. And this allows us to measure um, essentially your, your brain's electrical activity. Yeah. And um, we can make certain assumptions about cognition um, based on this electrical activity. Yeah. Um, and in that year, I was learning how to use EEG to look at um, predictive features in people who are at risk of getting Alzheimer's disease. Um, and this is where I stumbled across um, the mindfulness literature. So what I ended up finding in my um, honours year thesis on Alzheimer's disease was there was a, a particular way that their brains um, oscillate. And by oscillations, this just means um, the electrical activity or the brain waves. Um, there are certain features of their brain waves that were quite different to um, your average older adult. Um, so, for example, um, they had reduced power. So the amount of power that their brain was producing in a certain part of the brain. How do they measure power? Um, so when you collect your EEG data, yeah. um, you then can run something called a Fourier transform. So you take something from the time domain to the frequency domain, and then you can convert, you can take the um, amplitude of the brain wave, essentially. Mm. So if you think of any wave, like a sound wave or wavelength from light, it's just like any other 
wave or oscillation and then um your power is just your amplitude squared wow. so we just measure how much power that brain's producing and so what, what is that a sign of well it depends um so it depends on the the region yeah. of the brain um so for example our hippocampus yeah we know our hippocampus and by the way do you mind sharing just Briefly, what oh, hippocampus is. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah. Just yeah. Get an idea. Um, so a hippocampus is a structure that um, sits um, in inside the brain. It's a, it's a deeper structure, um, and it sits um, pretty much inside from where your temples are. So it sits in the temporal. We call these the temporal lobes, um, and the hippocampus is very important for learning and memory. Mm. Um, but also uh, a whole lot of other things. Um, it's very. It helps you navigate yourself in space, mm. um, and it's a very critical player in regulating your stress response. Mm. So a hippocampus um, does a whole lot of things for us. Um, so relating that specifically to the example of how power output can affect our brain. Yeah. So uh, for example, with the hippocampus, we know it produces um, uh, brain waves in a particular frequency band. So we call this the theta band. It means that it oscillates at three to um, five hertz-ish. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so we can relate certain um, how much power or in that frequency band is being generated from that part of the brain to efficiency, okay. um, I suppose. Um, but this isn't necessarily always the case, mm. so more isn't always better. Yeah. Sometimes it can be a case where more means a part of your brain is trying to compensate for I another see. area not doing very well. I see. Um, and it also depends on whether that part of your brain is dominated by neurons that we call um, our excitatory yeah. um, or neurons that are inhibitory. So right. excitatory are things that take your neurons closer to firing, making something happen. Um, and then inhibitory is taking yourself further away from firing. Um, so it um, inhibits a response, um, which... So power can inhibit or amplify. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, really it interesting. It depends on yeah. the... Yeah, on the yeah. Um, the, the context and the region yeah. um, and I guess as with when I, it's when you talk about the brain the thing I always have to remind myself is that it's it's very complex <laughs> yeah very complex it's, I mean yeah. even like what we've studied is only a small like scra scraping of like what's possible in terms of what we can learn yeah about the brain correctly totally. and yeah. also with things like so um, just an important note based on what we've already mentioned. So with EEG, you're only measuring the um, brain waves or electrical output yeah. from the surface of the yeah. brain. So things like the hippocampus, we cannot measure on humans yeah. um, non-invasively. Yeah, we can measure this yeah. in people who yeah. have gone into surgery and give yeah. consent. We can get an electrode and literally yeah. stick this into the brain yeah. and measure its electrical output. Um, but that's very hard to do. So yeah. most of the information, the knowledge that we have about the hippocampus comes from animal studies. Yeah. Um, Especially rodents, right? Yeah, 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 yeah so like yeah. my studies. and yeah. um, What else do they, what they look at when they're studying? rats, rabbits. Um, rabbits, okay. Yeah. yeah. But so I've only really come across rodents, really, rodent yeah. studies. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, that's really fascinating. So I guess to just to really summarize and make things a little more di um, like really digestible around what you shared about power output. So mm. like power output can be, um, yeah, amplification or, inhibita or inhibitation of a specific region in the brain, or it can also show 
showcase efficiency of mm-hmm. that area as well or compensation um, or, yeah or compensation mm. yeah so it's really interesting if we were to really summarize it that way yeah, yeah. so linking that all to mindfulness yeah. it turns out um well what i found is in my group of um people who had risk of alzheimer's disease yeah. um in the back of their brain um we call it the occipital lobe yeah. um they had reduced power in an alpha band which is at uh, 12-ish hertz. Okay. Um, and then I was reading some mindfulness literature um, through my own personal interests in, in mindfulness and meditation. And it turns out that meditation seemed to increase power in the exact same region wow. in the exact same frequency band. Yeah. And so I was sitting there putting two and two together, yeah. being like, well, if it, this is reduced in AED, in Alzheimer's disease, and if meditation boosts this, maybe there's something that meditation yeah. could do to offer to our dementia community um, wow. that could help, you know, offset or yeah. improve functioning. Yeah. Um, and I dived into that literature and yeah. turns and that out... was specifically Vipassana meditation, was that one? Uh, or was that... Well, do you remember what... I can't remember what okay. meditation that was linked yeah. to. Um, I think that was based off a meta-analysis of right. around 21 studies where wow. they looked at all of, I think that must have been in around 2010-ish, there was enough data to do a meta-analysis on the EEG research yeah. in meditation and mindfulness, and collectively those were the frequencies um, that uh, they saw creating change. And there's another key player too, which um, I can touch on later when we talk about attention, um, because that's a big part of this as well. But so after that honors year, um, I then essentially came to my supervisor who knows nothing about meditation or mindfulness, yeah. and I said, can I ditch the dementia stuff and just look at the neuroscience of meditation? Yeah. And so that led me to a very privileged position of being able to dedicate my PhD to studying the neuroscience of mindfulness. And are um, you not the only one in New Zealand doing that specifically? No, in New Zealand, but there's a, okay. there's, there are a few lab groups in New Zealand looking at it, but um, at Auckland Uni um, in um, my department, um, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm the only one focusing specifically on yeah, these measures. That's exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But also, um, it does concern me a little that there's like you know there's not much um yet looking in that direction yeah yeah, yeah they're, yeah. they're getting there yeah. australia is amazing with the stuff that they're doing mm. um a lot of work going on in america which is cool and i know there's some stuff going on at the um medical school in auckland the auckland city grafton campus they're doing some work there um looking at the use of meditation also look at the use of mindfulness for caregivers of dementia patients, which oh, is quite cool. Yeah. And I think AUT has a lab group um, doing some work on meditation and mindfulness, but I'm not quite sure what yeah. specifically, but yeah, so oh, in its cool. infancy, but hopefully yeah. making its way. Oh, very, very cool. So you study specifically cognitive neuroscience. Yes. So how would you describe cognition and um, how, do, um, and what exactly is like, how do you measure cognition? Yeah. yeah, so good question. Yeah. And um, I guess cognition isn't uh, a nobly well-defined <laughs> yeah. um, concept. I guess it refers to things like... Um, it's like consciousness, like, you know, so many different definitions for consciousness. Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah. So I guess the way I'd understand cognition um, are things like uh, mental processes that we can measure. Okay. Um, so things like attention control, yeah. um, conflict monitoring... Um, dis, you know, distractibility, um, decision making, um, executive functioning, 
uh, all those learning behavior, um, well, more learning than behavior. Um, and so what cognitive neuroscience essentially focuses on is using um, neuroscience methods, so things like EEG, or um, we can also use um, MRI in a way that we can look at the brain's function, which is called fMRI or functional MRI. And we try to link brain structure and brain function to cognition or to these outcomes or um, things that we can measure about mental processes um, that, that, that we use on a day-to-day -day basis mm. um, to function, essentially. Mm. Um, so memory is another one, yeah, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, yeah, so I'm, I suppose I'm focusing on looking at um, how mindfulness meditation changes certain aspects of our cognition. Yeah. Um, and I'm particularly focusing on uh, attention and working memory. Yeah. Um, Interesting. So could you also just define, like, could you also say cognition is also affecting how effectively and efficiently you can process information? Yep. Yeah. Yep, totally. So say one's ability to um, process, say, a traumatic event or a triggering event mm. and then to be able to process that um, experientially and... Uh, I, I guess, um, yeah, come to a place where they've been able to create some sort of solution around that rather mm. than um, this lengthened process that can lead to, you know, anxiety, un um, uncertainty, overwhelm. Mm. Um, yeah, so like if someone's got great cognition or great mm. cognitive ability, um, would they be able to, be, would they be more likely, um, mm. say, hypo hypothetically, to experience a traumatic event mm. and then um, and then be able to process that, create some sort of solution and then come out the other side. Totally. Like, yeah. That That's like, you yeah, know, emotion regulation yeah. and yeah. just, yeah. And, and problem solving, okay. um, and, um, you know, reducing like, reaction and all that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Cool. Cool. So I'd love to speak a little bit about that then. Um, cause you mentioned how, of course, there's certain things that can affect, um, one's mental health, like, which is like, um, obviously your cognitive ability, um, uh, you mentioned the hippocampus, so mm. their ability to regulate emotions as well. Um, what have you noticed in your research so far that has been the things that have affected these uh, factors in a positive light mm. the most? Yeah. So what's super cool yeah. is that there's been enough research now to do what they call a meta-analysis. Yeah. Um, so so they describe can, that quickly. Yeah, yeah so meta-analysis is essentially where they collate um, all the research that has been done on a particular topic um, and they summarize, they say, okay, what is collectively everyone seen? Um, and these are, I can't stress enough how important meta-analyses are because a single study in and of itself is, it, it gives us an indication mm. of what might be happening in a, you know, in a system. Um, but um, there, because of how essentially statistics works, um, there has to be research that gives us false findings. Um, we can't statistically get 100% of a real effect um, and have 100% of papers say there's actually an effect. Yeah, um, right. And so we have to do meta-analyses to know how, well, one, how big the effect is. So And so, you know, if we had 100 people meditating, um, would we get 80 people showing an improvement or one person showing an improvement? We could get one person showing an improvement with a, you know, a really high statistical value, um, but it's one out of a hundred. Or yeah. we could get 80 showing an improvement with a slightly lower statistic, but we've still got more people yeah. showing an improvement. So these meta-analyses are super important to give us an indication of what we're actually looking at. Yeah. How, how useful, how practic practically significant is this 
whatever it is that you're researching um, in terms of how it applies to the general population. Um, So with the mindfulness meditation literature, um, they... There were enough studies that had looked at um, EEG yeah. correlates of meditation and mindfulness, um, but also looked at structural changes. Right. So um, these were a combination of studies that compared long-term meditators, so um, something around 10,000 hours, versus your novice meditator who had never done it before. Um, and these studies also included ones where they had novice meditators meditate for a period of time. And then see how their brain changed. Yeah. Um, and there are some key players. Uh, so the brain um, regions that show the most remarkable and substantial and reliable change are the hippocampus, yeah. um, which we've touched on. Um, also the amygdala. Yeah, so describe that. Yeah, so our amygdala um, is our emotion center, yeah. essentially. Um, it's also involved in our stress response. Yeah. Um, and it has a bit of a negativity bias. Yeah. <laughs> so it's yeah, very so. responsive to aversive negative stimuli yeah. in our environment. Yeah. Um, and this has an evolutionary reason. Um, back in the day, uh, it was very important that we were very vigilant to signs of threat or death. So if there was a, a tiger running at us, it wasn't overly you know, beneficial for us to pause and go, let me mindfully appraise this situation. You've got to get going. Yeah. You know, you've got to go yeah. now or you're yeah. going to be eaten by a tiger. Yeah. Um, but what's happened over time is these tigers are no longer threats to us in our day-to-day life. We're not going to get eaten for survival. But um, the stresses are now things like work, relationships, um, study um, our own mental thoughts mm. are stresses and so the tiger is no longer out there in the environment but now it's in our mind mm. um and it's chasing us and our amygdala is still responding accordingly yeah. so a lot of us are operating in this fight or flight response constantly trying to run away from dangers because mm. evolutionary that's what we've been programmed to do yeah. be alert to danger yeah. be hyper vigilant to negative things in our environment that are going to hurt us yeah. um and they run away from them so that's why so many of us are running away from our thoughts because yeah. our amygdala is saying, this is painful, this is dangerous, get away. Hence anxiety. Hence anxiety, yeah, yeah. yeah. and depression and yeah. stress and mental health problems. Yeah. Um, so hippocampus and amygdala, mm. um, two big players. And uh, the other is um, the parts of the brain that are involved um, in what we call top, down control yes which i'm not sure if you've mentioned this i have talked about yeah, yeah. yeah it's very fascinating yeah, yeah. so um it's more cerebral activity isn't it yeah yes. yeah. yeah so the amygdala and hippocampus are what we call like our subcortical structures yeah. so below the cortex um the cortex is the outer layer of the brain um and so the other part that improves is um our prefrontal circuitry so prefrontal is just the front part of our brain mm. Um, and this is involved in um, things like decision making and um, executive control. So our prefrontal cortex can down-regulate our amygdala. Mm. It has really strong connectivity. Um, so like the little control center, like press these buttons yes. and like like little joysticks. And yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Literally, it's like yeah. what do we do? We've seen Inside Out. It's like yeah. that control Inside Out, the movie. Oh, yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. So that big control oh, yeah. center, that's our prefrontal cortex, yeah. kind of facilitating. Yeah. Um, so what meditation seems to do is it strengthens the connectivity 
Um, and they've shown this. Um, yeah. in, um, also, isn't there like a development in why great matter as well? Yes. In these regions. It's so yep. fascinating. Yeah. You can literally grow and develop our brain. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Super cool. Yeah. Um, that's actually a big part of the uh, like the attention working memory side of things. So right. there's a theory that um, what, so in terms of like the EEG correlates of mindfulness in, in meditation is it boosts um, activity in the theta band um which as we talked about seems to project from our hippocampus um but it is suggested that this increase in this theta activity um increases the essentially um skipping a couple steps here um the white matter in our brain so it activates um certain um cells in our brain that allow essentially insulation of our axons yeah, it's called yeah. myelin it, it insulates our axons and it improves efficiency of communication yeah. um, turns from little dirt roads into highways right yes yeah yeah, 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 yeah exactly yeah. Yeah. yeah um and so it uh it improves the the regulatory um control mm. over our amygdala's activity mm. um and this leads to a really unique um Oh, there's one actually moving part to this. So it also increases self-awareness. So a part of our brain called the insula um, and also um, the temporal parietal junction. Um, Our insula sits just, again, kind of alongside your head and your temples. Yes. Um, And this is very involved in things like, yes, self-awareness. And uh, so what you get is this beautiful interaction of being more aware of being able to appraise things in our environment that are self-relevant. So, you know, someone yells at you, you go, is this a me or a you problem? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Is this about my issues or is it about your issues? Yeah. So we're better at self-evaluating the relevance of ourself in any situation. Yeah. So would you say it's like the definition of self-awareness? Yeah. What you just shared? Yeah, yeah, cool. yeah, yeah. essentially. Yeah. And if you were to define it like through neuroscience, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Or just in general, like that's a beautiful... Um, definition of exactly what it is yeah which is really interesting self-awareness yeah and very important um because once we know if something's self-relevant then we go okay this is relevant to me um the next thing it improves with this amygdala prefrontal interaction is um our ability to then regulate well appraise the 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 thing that's going on is this good is this bad okay so our amygdala is very involved in judging yeah, <laughs> it's a very yeah. judgy part of the brain yeah so here's this good it's, it's very this... black and white isn't it yeah 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 um and so we can then better appraise the situation and and figure out whether it is an aversive stimuli in our environment be that our mind or others and then um the next step is the improved regulation so then we have our prefrontal circuitry regulating an appropriate response to that aversive stimuli be it positive or negative or if it's negative it's aversive but if it's positive then we can also regulate an appropriate response so this interplay of self-awareness appraisal and evaluation and regulation is essentially what mindfulness and meditation can cultivate um, both in response to yourself and in response to others because it's not just other people yelling at us most of the time it's (laughs) our own mind yelling at us and if we can say hey yep there's something negative going on in my mind but I can appraise that in a way that I know that that's not actually about me. That's yeah. just about my past or about insecurities yeah. or trauma. And there's actually no danger going on right now. I am safe. Yeah. And the way I want to respond to that is with love and compassion and kindness. Mm. I'm not going to buy into the bullshit, essentially. Um, but that takes 
practice. That's hard. It takes a lot of practice. We I are mean, so inclined to believe it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like the um, natural reaction that's going to occur, that of the amygdala, is going to be based on um, programming that's occurred mm. so far, um, based on the success rate of that programming programmed experience, right? Mm. So if I have, a, um, well, ultimately achieved safety, which naturally we're here, we mm. say, um, based on a previous exp- um, reaction to an experience, I'm always going to cut back to that reactively yeah. because that's the thing that the brain knows yeah. um, has worked in the past. Mm. Thus, I'm more likely to react with that, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Okay, and then our cerebral capability, okay, um, our frontal lobes capability, I should say, mm. um, and that um, ability to cultivate this top-down control, which is enhanced through mindfulness meditation and all that. Mm. Um, utilizing that gives me an ability now to change how I respond to situations that previously I would have reacted to mm. and an old programmed way. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah, 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 yeah totally. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, really fascinating, really fascinating. And you started talking about, um, uh, yeah, so you spoke about this uh, uh, compassion and, um, mm. yeah, this experience of compassion that we can have towards ourselves. So how does one go about um, practicing compassion based on what you've read up so far? Yeah. And um, what are some of the uh, evidence or what are some of the findings that you found through this concept of practicing compassion. Mm. Yeah. So um, I think first what might be helpful is just differentiating what we're talking about when we say mindfulness. Yeah. Um, so um, meditation, first and yeah. foremost, um, refers to a variety of contemplative practices. Oh, um, so many. Yeah, yeah a lot. Um, and we as Westerners have more or less taken this um, and uh, narrowed it down and refined meditation to um, something that is more digestible um, and uh, I guess understandable. And so we, uh, when we talk about mindfulness, this is a type of meditation, mm. um, which is most closely linked um, to Vipassana, yeah, traditional meditation. Yeah, because yeah, it's really fascinating. Many, in, many Indian dialects, they actually have over 30 types of ways of meditation. So wow. yeah, over 30. Um, uh, like, I mean, there's actually more types, but rather, sorry, they've got over 30 words. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just say meditation because yeah. there's different ways to actually, or different angles to look at it. It's yeah. Interesting. So a lot, yeah, a lot of like people, um, one of the first questions they get is, well, what is actually mindfulness? Yeah. <laughs> um, and the way that, um, I guess in the, the academic world, this is defined, um, is according to a man called John Kabat-Zinn, who is very much the pioneer of um, mindfulness in Western world. Um, he um, was a molecular biologist who um, wanted to help chronic pain patients, and he designed a program called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, um, which received uh, a lot of um, support and um, was hugely beneficial. And he uh, defined mindfulness as um, non-judge paying attention on purpose to the present moment um while suspending judgment um and this is the definition that uh we typically stand by now um is what mindfulness is um and so the key part there is um well there's a few key parts the first is the purposefully paying attention which we actually very rarely do. <laughs> um we more or less let ourselves... Are there many statistics out there about how often we're actually specifically paying attention probably yeah, but yeah, i yeah. haven't um okay. read up on that yeah, but yeah, yeah. Our, our attentional system is well it's very capacity mm. limited so we can only pay attention to certain amount of things and um, is that to do with um, acetylcholine production or what's that to do with? i'm not sure yeah, about yeah, the yeah. neuromolecular yeah uh, neuromodulators yeah, involved in, in terms that. of like 
overall availability of that or yeah yeah that's what i'm just saying. not sure oh, okay not sure if I'm yeah. sure. Ah. um what i do know is that it's um in terms of its relation to well like mindfulness yeah. um it's that's kind of one part of it yeah. with attention and then the other part is the non-judgmental and so this leads back into the compassion kind of question that you were saying yes. so if we're um a lot of people get stuck and they go cool i'm going to be mindful of what's going on in my mind and their mind's yelling at them, it's being mean, and it's like, cool, I'm aware. Mm. I am now very aware of yeah. these nasty thoughts. Yeah, and that's interesting now because, yeah, people actually <laughs> feel like mindfulness is a backward step for some people because they're yeah. like, man, I was so much better off when I wasn't aware. Yeah. And that's what they say, ignorance is bliss. Yeah. But what I like to say is ignorance is bliss until you hit the ground. Ignorance mm. is when I'm jumping out of the airplane and I've got my parachute. Mm. <laughs> it's bliss. And then I hit the ground. I'll just yeah, deal with yeah. that problem later. Yeah. And it's like if there's a fire in my kitchen and I'm like, ah, no, nah, there's no fire in my kitchen. Yeah, that's what a lot of <laughs> yeah. people are doing with their mind, yeah. right? It's like, um, no, nah, I'm not anxious, I'm fine. Or, yeah. no, nah, things are fine, it's fine, it's fine. Yeah, I'll be okay. Um, rather than actually paying attention to what the issue actually is or what's mm. actually going on. Oh, there's a fire in my kitchen. Mm. Now I can do something about it. Yeah. yeah. I can get out of the house, call 911 or mm. 111, depending on where they are. Yeah. Um, yeah. So totally. ultimately, um, yeah, ignorance is bliss. For a moment yes. <laughs> not for a long yeah. time yeah so we have to yeah go into the mind mm. um but then also do so yeah compassionately so there is a t- type of meditation called meta meditation mm. um which is very it's beautiful um and the general process is um first and foremost developing love and compassion for yourself so wishing yourself good you know to be peace for safety um for comfort um then you wish that same um, love and compassion to others you are fond of, others that you you know you hold closely and dearly to your life. Um, then you extend it to people who you have conflict with, people you don't particularly bond well with, or perhaps someone at work who irritates you. I like that. Um, and then you extend it to common humanity, so mm. the rest of the world. So you extend that love and compassion to all beings. That's that's literally what they're teaching for Parsana. Mm. Yeah, that's been like a two and a half thousand year old practice. That's so yeah. cool. I, I, is that, I wonder if that's where they got it or if they just came to that on their own and then it just happened to match. Yeah, it's so fascinating. Is that something that they taught in your Vipassana? So uh, that's one, one of the last piece of what Vipassana is. So Vipassana is essentially a, um, a variation of meditation. So it's just a certain practice that Buddha himself, Gautama, the Buddha, mm. um, invented um, based on what he found uh, was the reverse to suffering. So yeah. basically he felt into suffering and then recognized um, how to, um, where suffering was occurring at what level when he recognized it was our mental reactions to sensations that mm. occurred within ourselves. So he recognized that if we created this um, uh, equanimity or neutrality with um, how we experience sensations, so whether I felt sad or happy, whether I felt agitated or calm, I was experiencing them in the same way. So mm. they comes back to again roughly sort of the amygdala um activation based on the experience instead there's no um stimulation in the amygdala mm. um, within those experiences that are different to say if i'm happy or if i'm yeah, calm or i'm yeah. just actually enjoying this sensational experience um yeah and even if uh, pleasure rather than having this pleasurable experience i'm actually experiencing pleasure still just simply in a way where i feel calm and yeah. i'm accepting of yeah. the pleasure rather than I'm just engulfed in the pleasure yeah so like this real beautiful concept and then the last piece to that once you've come to this place of centeredness neutrality equanimity mm. um, from there you're more capable of practicing 
compassion. So compassion mm. is actually the last piece of Vipassana, mm. where once you're in this place where you don't have any um, uh, any battles or negativity that's flowing through you because now you've been able to create this neutrality, um, you're more capable of going into a deep compassionate state, which means that you practice compassion in a way where you're um, expressing your gratitude and your compassion towards um, all beings around you. Um, and I know in yoga um, and more traditional yoga, they've taught you to go yeah, through the stages where it'll be like um, you practice, um, uh, I believe, yeah, you practice compassion to those that you love mm. and then you practice compassion to those that, you know, you Challenge just might you. see. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, you just yeah. might notice, like the postman or like, yeah. if that still is a yeah. thing for people or like, um, you know, the, um, the bus driver or whatever, just people they see here and there or the barista and then they practice, yeah. Um, uh, oh, no, then they practice... Um, compassion for animals yeah um yeah 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 and then they practice um compassion for um yeah people that challenge you mm. and then they practice compassion for um yeah non-animal nature um mm. sort of objects like trees or yeah. like plants or things like that or even yeah. the chair you know yeah yeah so it's re- real interesting but fascinating oh, yeah. to hear how like there's obviously just more steps but it's fascinating mm. how the same sort of process in a way is well i I, yeah. I would imagine then that meeting meditation or compassion mm. meditation would also then stem from Vipassana. But what the yeah. really cool thing is, um, especially after hearing that, is um, when they've looked at compassion meditation compared to other types of meditation, um, that's what produces the most robust neural changes. Um, and I think that's amazing. And within, so what I mean is you get the most rapid changes um, over time. So, um, and by, I mean within 24 hours, um, you're seeing changes in behavior, um, and within a week, you're seeing changes in brain structure um, with the amygdala and the empathy circuitry um, being um, far more um, connected, um, and the, yeah, the amygdala um, actually finally reducing in size. So this reduction in size is, is parallel to the non-reactivity. So I'm assuming because um, the brain must perceive, okay, this isn't a necessary um, piece of the brain uh, compared to what I believed it was, mm. um, if that makes sense. So I, I yeah. guess it was sort of, do you th- like, is it something to do with it's like making room for other areas to develop or? I think it's more about, so I think there's a couple ways that I would interpret it. Yeah. Um, one is that our amygdala sends the signal to trigger our stress response. Right. So I think having a reduced having a a amygdala that's reduced in in size and structure means that we're getting a less um, overactive stress response, essentially. And and we all know that when we're feeling stressed, we're not the most compassionate people. (laughs) So I think that's a big part of it too. Um, And yeah, I think it's also just because it has that kind of negativity sort of bias, um, it, it, it responds more to negative things in our environment than to positive things. So when it's just kind of down-regulated slightly, mm. it means that we're less reactive to the negative yeah. things around us um, and, I guess, better able to appraise things as being mm. uh, in more of a neutral sort of dynamic. Um, but I guess another caveat here is that we very rarely, in cognitive neuroscience, talk about structures in isolation. It's all about how they work in co-activation. Yeah, yeah. Of well, so it should be, right? Yeah. yeah like, I mean, you can't really just take the amygdala on its own and yeah. be like, this is the only thing in the brain that's changed. <laughs> yeah. So like, you know, the hippocampus, for example, yeah. when we talk about how it activates, you know, within its um, 
like say with like the parahippocampal gyrus yeah. or like another part of the brain, then we're talking about um, things possibly more to do with like spatial memory yeah. um, or um, like navigation. But then we talk about it like in co-activation with other parts of the brain, it might be talking about stress. Yeah. So it's like it, it, how a brain structure functions depends on its co-activation of other parts of the brain and also how it's working in networks. So, um, and this is a relatively new idea to talk about things in terms of networks. Um, and that's actually really relevant to mindfulness. So they discovered a network, um, I think it was in the 2000s, called the default mode network. Have you heard about this? No. Oh, really? Okay, well, this is cool. So the default mode network um, was a network that they came across. Uh, they, in a study, again, accidentally, they just noticed that um, during a particular task, it was an fMRI task. So fMRI is um, you look at, I guess, how much uh, uh, blood... The, the blood oxygen level of the brain um, and essentially brains working harder you get an increase in blood oxygen level so um, you can see um, function in the brain uh, and that what they found is during these times of off-task activity um, they uh, found a certain number of brain regions that shared co-activation together and they um, and it was very consistent across all participants um, and what they now refer to this is our default mode and it's essentially our mind wandering network so when we're not doing much just daydreaming ruminating brooding um, thinking about the past thinking about the future um, thinking about ourselves we get the default mode network yeah now the default mode network sounds a little bit doom and gloom (laughs) um, because it has been associated with poor mental health outcomes um, but it it is a necessary network yeah. because we can't be vigilant 24-7. Yeah, yeah, we totally. have to have a break. Totally. And mind-wandering allows for things like insight and creativity. Yeah. Um, and it can be a, a beautiful process. But also overuse of the default mode, uh, I guess, is also a sign of lack of top-down control, would yes, you say? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. this is the other real yeah. thing is that really it works um, when the default mode network is on. Yeah. Our executive attention network... The attention network is off. Other yeah. networks, it works in um, uh, in balance with mm-hmm. our other networks. Um, oh, it's like a good breeze for myself. What's that? Sorry. <laughs> oh, let's give myself a breeze. All oh, right. It's like, whoa, that feels good. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and what's really neat about um, this department network is that we know that it is disrupted in a variety of mental health um, and neurodegenerative disorders. Yeah. So Alzheimer's disease, for example, they have a disrupted default mode network. Yeah. Um, people with major depressive disorder, um, depression and anxiety, um, have an overactive default mode network. Um, and mindfulness meditation reduces the activity of the default mode network. Right, I see. So yep. it's this is also another case that we're seeing that the thing that meditation and mindfulness is improving is the thing that is dysfunctional yeah. in mental health problems. Yeah. Um, which is exciting that there is possibly a way that we can harness yeah. a skill that is inherently within us that is free. You know, it's cost effective. Yeah. It's accessible. Um, yeah. that, that's neurological. And it's far more organic without the side effects, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and what I'd love to re- refer exactly what you shared with, um, shared about too is literally what you're explaining is what we would say in the realm of mindfulness, in the realm of yoga, um, in the realm of meditation, we would say 
that someone becoming more conscious. Yes. Right. Yeah. So yeah, totally. essentially top down control, one's ability to come out of the default mode at will is one's mm. ability to be more conscious, right? Because mm. that's one's ability to come out of the mode where they're more likely to be reactive. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Therefore more responsive. Yeah. yeah. In other words, they can create more distance between stimulus and response. Mm. Correct. Yeah. yeah very yeah, true. Yeah. So yeah. when stimulus occurs, there's a yeah, greater ability to, yeah, there's a greater ability to pause, uh, yeah, cognitively uh, resolve mm. it in a way before actually taking action rather than taking action straight away based on default. Mm. Is that correct? Like, yeah. 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 Yeah, so well, I think super interesting. The other important thing to um, that I like to share with yeah, people, please. I talked this about, um, mind wandering is a necessary process. Yes. And when I think of, when we think of meditation and the the, the practice of mindfulness, um, I have a lot of people say, "I've tried it; it doesn't work." Yeah, like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can't do it. Yeah, I've sat <laughs> down. And my mind just goes crazy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Like, and so, um, in at least the way that I research mindfulness, I think of it as a three step process. Yeah. Um, and all three steps are equally as important. Mm. Step one, pick a point of focus. Mm. Step two, mind wanders. Mm. That is an important step. And the reason why that's important is because this, the parts of our brain that are changing are relevant to step three. And step three is, Noticing the mind is wandered. Yeah. Redirecting attention back to your point of focus. Yeah. If your mind doesn't wander, you don't get to practice that redirecting of attention. Yeah. And it's that redirecting of attention, that step three, that starts to cultivate these structural changes in our brain. Mm. That is the most important part. Love that. So the next time you yeah. anyone tries to sit down and meditate and you go, oh, my mind wandered. That is when you That's rejoice. Yeah, You're like, yeah. I just noticed my mind wandered. Yeah. I'm bringing it back to my point of focus. Yeah. And I'm now now the change happens. Yeah. But people get Love so that. caught up in thinking that the change happens when their mind is absent of wandering. Mm. Or that they're, yeah. they're focusing on nothing. They go, oh, yeah. there's nothing in my mind. Yeah. It's like... As long as there's nothing in your mind, you're not practicing that skill of yeah. redirecting attention. Totally. And this is why attention is so important. Yeah. Um, and linking this back to the earlier kind of correlate stuff, um, our a, a big uh, structure in our brain called the anterior cingulate cortex um, is very important in this attention network and also executive control and functioning. Yeah. Um, and this part of the brain increases in activity and in function, and it also um, produces and oscillates in the theta frequency band, right. which we know to increase in mindfulness meditators. Yeah. So all this stuff kind of starts to link together now, right? right. Where we've got um, these the the functional correlates of, of mindfulness being like our alpha and theta frequency mm. bands, um, doing two different things that work together to give us overall output of Im- improved self-awareness, emotion regulation, uh, you know, conflict monitoring, response inhibition, um, just cognitive control in general in a way that's compassionate and mm. non-reactive. Like, yeah. what a beautiful space to be in. It's amazing. It takes a lot to get there. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And what I'd love to touch on as well is um, that point of focus that you mentioned, so you mentioned the three steps. Mm. One is um, to uh, have a point of focus. Mm-hmm. The second is to um, notice, uh, have the mind wander. And the third is notice the mind wander and bring it back. And mm. that point of focus can be, um, when we come to meditation, uh, it can be many things. It can be the guidance that someone is listening to. It can be the breath. Mm. It can be um, even something visual by the sounds of it as well mm-hmm. from uh, some of the research that I've heard is the yeah. tie between visual focus and also as well, um, one's ability to come to a place of 
um, uh, internal focus or internal mm. um, uh, awareness and internal mm. assessment as well. Because um, at the end of the day, my ability to um, uh, uh, yeah to visually focus on something is also directly correlated to my ability mm. to come to this in a way um, conscious awareness within in a yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think the the ultimate goal, yeah. right, is so yeah we have these meditations that are more. Um, approachable now because yeah. of that reason it's easier to pay attention to something like that we can visually see yeah something that we um you know that we know is or listen to because yeah. these are senses that we're you're used to yeah. the ultimate goal from doing that is to make the point of focus awareness itself mm. and getting to that point mm. is is why we meditate by using the breath because mm. the breath is there it's yeah. always going to be there unless you yeah. stop breathing in which case you've got to call the yeah. ambulance right but you yeah. know like it's um, an automatic process that can mm. be um regulated. yeah that can be regulated yeah. but ultimately if we're able to come to a place where we can um allow what could be regulated to be non-regulated and just mm. autonomic um, auto- um yeah, yeah, yeah automatic yeah. um then ultimately we're coming to a place of, um, yeah, letting go, a place of focus while letting go, yeah. and therefore a place of every time I try to take control of the breath, acknowledging it, also mm. letting it go, and then coming back to that point of focus of allowing the breath as well. Mm. And there's just so many different yeah methods to come to when it comes to the practice of meditation mm. uh, that utilize exactly what you shared. I love that you just, um, I don't like to use the word dumbed down, but just simplified um, you just simplified something that can be so complex for so many people. Mm. And what I love about that visual focus point is that people can practice meditation if they can't sit down and just be there with their thoughts because some people mm. find it too overwhelming. Yeah. You can practice walking meditation. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, yeah, for those that are interested as well, um, if you want to read more about the uh, the mindfulness side of that, um, yeah, look at Thich Nhat Hanh. I don't know if you've heard of Thich Nhat Hanh. Mm, no, He's I a haven't. Vietnamese Buddhist monk. Cool. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, quite well renowned he was friends with um nelson mandela um yeah and actually really helped with um nelson's approach to bringing more peace in south africa which is really beautiful Mm. so to see how yeah yeah, they really incorporated the teachings of Han and i think it's tainahan Han, but yeah um yeah people can look that up um but that is man i'm absolutely blown away like i've literally been looking at the time and recognize that we've gone over an hour already um yeah, yeah. Sorry. Um, yeah no no don't be sorry this is fantastic it's fantastic so i do want to there's still a couple more things i want to dive into sure. but um yeah um, i want to try to keep it as succinct as possible and then we'll um wrap it up so we don't overdo it but who knows we might end up getting jody back on because <laughs> we've got so much more i want to touch on um but what i'd love to uh what i'd love to ask you about is you, we've mentioned a few times how focus can tie into mental health. Um, is that what you just shared in terms of those three, that three-step process in any way that people can practice focus or are there other methods or other processes that people can use uh, constantly in order to practice this ability to focus or practice top-down control? Like, are there any yeah. other methods? That... Well, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think as a, as a tool, yeah. um, practicing mindfulness um is, is is i guess one way yeah, of, of yeah. going about that right yeah. um and i think importantly um i'm going to semi deviate a yeah. little bit from the Please. question because i think this is useful it's not the case that more is better mm. with um people who are new to mindfulness so in terms of improving mental health outcomes 
um, there was a really great um, meta-analysis mm. that looked at uh, duration of, of mindfulness programs and daily meditation doses to see if there was a dose response um, in people who have never meditated before and then get told to meditate. Turns out um, there is an optimal amount of time um, and it's not an hour. <laughs> it's not more is better. If you're advanced, sure, the more mm. the better. Once you've got it, you've got it because yeah. you're practicing the right thing. Yeah. You know, but it's like anything. If you're trying to learn piano and you're practicing the wrong notes, you're not going to get any better. Yeah, you actually you've got to go slow. Yeah, yeah, you move further away. So 10 minutes a day yeah. um, is first and foremost a good place to start. Yeah. Um, and even if, if you can't do that, two minutes a day. Yeah. Whatever the, the, the best mental health outcomes yeah. from practicing mindfulness is doing it in a way where you feel like it it is serving you it works yeah. for you um you're not sitting there feeling agitated at yourself that you're doing it wrong yeah if you can only sit down for a minute but at the end of that minute you feel accomplished and you feel like you notice your mind wandering mm. once and redirect it back you've still done that once yeah and you're still moving forward and what eventually starts to happen is there's a shift in your neural circuitry where it goes from being very effortful mm. to being very effortless. Wow. Yeah. Um, and they, they should have shown this and with long-term versus short-term meditators, um, that there is, um, it becomes like effortless doing. Mm. Um, and there are, there are yeah, neural correlates of that process of effortless doing. So, um, yeah, the, the big thing there is I think keep it, keep it brief. Um, but keep it intentional mm. and then the compassion starts to come with that as well yeah. um, because you're showing yourself compassion by yeah. saying one minute is enough for me yeah. that is a compassionate oh, way to so treat good. yourself yes. it's not compassionate to yourself to go I'm going to force myself to sit here for an hour yeah, yeah. and sit in my mind yeah. and be mad yeah. that is not showing yourself yeah, yeah. compassion yeah. Um, and like you said it's, um, yeah, once that comes a compassionate practice then that is um, a feasible thing to do mm, yeah, yeah totally yeah yeah, I love that. And then um, also bringing in the art of practicing compassion in the way that you shared earlier. Mm. Um, that's something that doesn't necessarily need to be done in a meditative um, oh. sense, correct? Right? It yeah. can be done when they're driving yeah. and public transport. Yep. It can be done at work. First just, thing in the yeah. morning, last yeah. thing before you go to bed. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. Practicing compassion mm. um, is will transform um, the way that you interact with yourself. Yeah. and others and the world around you um, mm. surprisingly rapidly, Yeah. Um, which is very cool. Yeah, I love that. Something I'd even recommend for um, people to do, because of course it's a, it's a, it's a non-cost um, practice, mm. it's just simply to put reminders in your phone, not in terms of alarms, because that's really agitating, you know, <laughs> like midday. Be compassionate. But to set um, non-calendar, because then calendars get cluttered, but on um, Apple, right, we've got reminders app, so using that reminders app, um, like say I used to do it I used to do a practice once an hour for a day um, mm. like for days every day from 9 to 6 I think it was I used to do a practice where I'd, it would be where's your vibe and it would be what I'd do is I'd um, tune into the present moment mm. I'd, um, I'd um, yeah, practice a sense of compassion um, or gratitude in that moment um, really both really at the time at the same time and then I'd come to a place where I'd tune into the vibe or the feeling that I want to be in and then I'd start acting um, consistently through that and then I sort of learned over time just to be in that vibe or be in that experience be in that feeling and um, that in a way is definitely a practical thing starting with small doses right maybe twice a day three times a day mm. um, where people can incorporate in a way a reminder 
to practice that compassion. Otherwise, it's something that can easily get thrown out the window. It's like, mm. oh, I didn't practice compassion today. Damn it. Like, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. And it turns into the opposite of yeah. what it's meant to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Getting mad at yourself for judging yourself for judging yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Like, ah. <laughs> but that's literally what happens within the level of the mind, right? It's like um, people get anxious about their anxiety or they get depressed mm. about feeling depressed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's crazy how the mind is just multiplying the suffering the sufferable experience mm. that's occurring which is super fascinating mm. um so i'd just love to i get i guess um tie up this by asking how does from your understanding how does peace show in the brain when someone is peaceful or content Ooh. yeah i don't think i think that's somewhat an ill-defined problem yeah um i don't know interesting yeah, I th- yeah. and i'd love to at some point be able to answer that question yeah. whether or not we can um i'm not sure but i guess my idea of a peaceful mind is one with a uh a non-dominant default mode network ah <laughs> uh, yeah okay yeah you oh, know beautifully said. yeah beautifully said yeah. yes um and a uh yeah i guess a a heightened self-awareness and empathy to the creature, I suppose. Because yeah. there's that interplay, right, between being self-aware, but then being compassionate to what you then discover. Yeah. And awareness. Yeah. Um, and empathetic towards yourself. So, yeah. yeah, I think peace comes not from, which actually you mentioned, I think is really important. Um, taking the good, but not too much. Yeah. Taking the bad, but not too much. Yeah. Um, it, it's important to take in both. Yeah. Um, but even attaching to good and latching yeah. onto it is is not necessarily the yeah so we well, create a version right like yeah i feel this way i can't feel that I way can't, i, I, I that need to feel that way again yeah, yeah we become chasing things and that i don't think that is the path to peace so mm. i think the path yeah to peace is kind of finding balance <laughs> man it's been so good i really enjoyed this i literally have like another 10 questions i want to go through <laughs> that i haven't even written down but they've just come to me but um, what I'd love to tie this up with, um, just just for time, is do you have anything that you've learnt across the time that you've been studying neuroscience or just even in your studies in general mm. that you feel has been really practical for your own mental health that you've been applying um, that has served you, aside from the things that we've already touched on? Yeah. yeah. Um, the things that are pivotal for me yeah. that I've learnt... That it's important to slow down. Yeah. I think trying... What's really overwhelming is learning about all these benefits that mindfulness meditation can give you. Mm. You get very um, compelled to want to then chase that and Mm. go, oh, I should be doing this. I need Mm. to meditate every day. And I know it's benefiting me, so why am I not doing it? Mm. Um, And the whole, you know, more is better and and that kind of thing. But when I, I think I found it really... Um, helpful looking at that um, when I, I looked at the studies mm. on that kind of dose thing for me that was probably the, one of the biggest things it's like slow down mm. um, do what you can in stages and be okay at the rate of change Yeah. Um, and let that be what it is essentially and I think mindfulness is a beautiful journey of that of observing your rate of change in um and, and loving yourself at that 
whatever rate that is, mm. um, and being ex- being quietly um, optimistic and excited to see where that takes you. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think learning about it has, has definitely encouraged me to do it more. Wow. Um, I still need to do it more, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. but um, not at the expense of, of self judgment. Yes. Um, so do it from a place of. Um, I guess the alternative of like well emergency meditators. It's like people who <laughs> meditate when everything goes really bad. Yeah, yeah. They're like, I'm struggling, let's meditate now. Yeah. But rather um, meditate from a place of like I deserve this. Yeah. Um, doing it from a place of compassion, self love. Yeah. Um, I deserve this, and I des- and I want to give this to others. Mm. Um, you work on yourself. Um, I guess another thing I've learned is that the the impact it has on how you interact with other people yeah people are kinder to others and to the world when they're kind to themselves yeah um and so you know you're always you can always turn around and point the finger back at you yeah what can you do to love yourself more yeah um to make an impact yeah um yeah beautiful and that's coming from a neuroscientist guys <laughs> <laughs> yeah but um a yogi neuroscientist because uh, <laughs> so uh, you are yeah you are um training to be a yoga instructor which no one can see oh there's a camera yeah there is there is some um, for those listening i'll be starting a youtube channel um for this season um this is the first one i've actually recorded so very excited to um, get this up in video format as well um so the last thing that i'd like to touch on even though that last thing was meant to be the last thing but um sorry no 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 i'm the one that needs to be sorry i'm the one that keeps coming up with all this stuff um have you seen much research on gratitude because i know there's been Mm. a lot of research on gratitude and is the research um, or the results from that similar to that of compassion practice because it's interesting because gratitude is about self almost Mm. um you know usually even if it's like i'm grateful for this person it's still i am for this person mm. rather than you know feeling compassionate compassion for that or for this mm. yeah it's more sort of you know um giving in a way mm. compassion is more about giving and gratitude is more about receiving in a way so it'll be yeah. interested to hear if it's similar in terms of the conclusions that have been um that have been painted or mm. if it's actually slightly different this is a really easy one i don't know ah. have a look at any of the gratitude yeah. research yeah. yeah it doesn't seem to at least crop up in um like in accordance with the mindfulness literature, yeah, I just haven't really seen it emerge. I would have thought it would have, um, yeah. I think maybe because it doesn't have its own, like, uh, I guess, historical, um, like, Eastern roots, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Like, the whole, like, meta-meditation is translated as, you know, compassion. Yeah. So I'm wondering if perhaps there's just not, like, a, a type of meditation that specifically and only focuses on gratitude. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I would imagine it has the same effect. I yeah. would imagine it's very similar to compassion. Because, yeah. like, there's done um, a lot of, like, um, studies on um, serotonin and gratitude. Yeah. Um, but they don't really, um, so far, what I've seen is I've only really seen abstracts of this. I've only mm. really seen, you know, the depth in terms of the methods applied mm. and all that sort of thing. So it'd be really interesting actually yeah, to dive more into that. Mm. Um, because, you know, most people talk about, you know, um, gratitude gives you serotonin. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Why? And, um, and also just because someone's getting, um, you know, an increase in serotonin production doesn't necessarily mean that that could, um, cross over to be a sustainable benefit as well. Yeah. 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 So it'd be really interesting to see more yeah. like, long-term practice 
um, applications of this mm. um, alongside even um, you know the compassion meditation mm. and then seeing the benefits of them together or yeah. separate and seeing differences and yeah I'd say anything that cultivates a feeling of um, like positivity mm. um, and gratitude is obviously one of those things mm. um, particularly towards the self yeah. would have similar benefits um, yeah. and I would absolutely at least recommend it oh yeah um, definitely I think there's no I mean no downside um, and it would also yeah. Uh, I'd imagine it'd help with the, yeah things like self awareness because you're going over the things that you have in your life um, mm. that are relevant to you and how you're grateful for them and then I imagine when you know if things start going awry you've already acknowledged that day yeah. things that you can say okay that didn't work out for me but I'm grateful that I'm actually alive yeah you know um yeah, so totally. I think it would help in that regard yeah, yeah. yeah. but yeah. now how does someone across yeah. the literature yeah that's mm. cool um but yeah I'd love to um before we wrap up completely I'd just love to touch on that gratitude practice because. That's something I struggled with immensely um, mm. going through my um, self-development is um, I practiced gratitude in written form, but I couldn't feel gratitude. So, uh, you know, yeah. like I have these gratitude journals. I did this for like two years. And it wasn't until I learned how to meditate on gratitude that I actually experienced gratitude. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, this is what gratitude feels like. But yeah. After two years of practicing it, you know, because I was real depressed once upon a time and um, feeling gratitude or grateful was very difficult for me. So people would be like, just be grateful for your life. I'm like, how? Yeah, I, I can't be grateful yeah. for I, I don't know how to do that. Yeah. Um, so I think it's wow. important to share as well that, um, yeah, gratitude is a practice at the same time doesn't necessarily mean you have to feel it while you're mm. practicing it. It's like anything, right? Like um, I might be practicing to juggle, but it doesn't mean yeah. I can juggle. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, well, yeah. meditation and mindfulness yeah. is the same. Same like, thing. You're not going to go into it and go, oh, yeah. I have insight. Yeah. Aha, done totally. it. It's going to be a lifelong <laughs> yeah. journey. And I am a yogi. <laughs> I'm a yogi, yeah. Like some days you'll sit down and you'll be like, cool, so I just spent 10 minutes redirecting my attention every 10 seconds. Yeah. Um, but then you can Fantastic. go, great, I just had 10 minutes of redirecting my attention yeah, every 10 seconds. I need to practice. So, so it's about how you perceive things and yeah. appraise things. Um, but yeah, the gratitude one I think is, is interesting because mm. I've noticed the same thing when I've tried to do um, yeah, gratitude, either written or yeah. just kind of like just counting on my fingers. Yeah. There seems to be a detachment from um, physical sensation. Yeah. And I think one of the, the really important things we're wanting to train is the body's reaction to the mind. Yes. Um, yes. And so when it's um, externalized in some way, you're actually taking away from that practice of observing your body's reaction to the mind. Yeah. And so when we're practicing gratitude mentally, internally, yeah. we can then go, how does my body react to that? Right. Oh, that's a nice warm, fuzzy feeling. Yeah. I want that more. Yeah. You know, whereas it's outside or external by writing or looking, um, you're not really feeling your body in response to how you think so good jody this has been absolutely amazing <laughs> <laughs> i yeah um i'm sure we'll at some stage do something like this again um, but thank you so much it's been absolutely incredible um to wrap up i'd love to i'd love for you to share firstly where they can find you oh yeah yeah so where can they find you uh Social media. Social media. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, Jody do you Val. want to share your Instagram or? Yeah. 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 Um, uh, yeah. My name is Jodie Bell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nicole Bell. Um, I'm not overly active on social media. Um, but you know, yeah. Um, if anyone's actually curious about, um, mindfulness meditation, I'd mm. love to talk about it. Mm. Um, <laughs> as is yeah, yeah. <laughs> evident. Yeah. Um, so yeah, happy also, to answer questions. Yeah. And also stay tuned guys. Cause, um, she is going to be doing her, um, yoga teacher training and eventually has a vision of being a very overqualified yoga teacher um, who would be able to actually be a lot more 
um, uh, a lot more attractive in a way to a very westernized audience who is very focused on um, that of a logical mind mm. or logical concepts or practices yeah. um, and you'd be able to bring a lot of logistics to why yoga why yeah. these practices why this why that and mm. um, I feel like it's going to be so beautiful so I'm excited for you to be able to bring that to the world mm. especially here in New Zealand yeah yeah, yeah, yeah so I'm excited to share knowledge yeah, yeah. always happy to so yeah, yeah. anyone's welcome to ask me questions about it I'll mm. always talk <laughs> yes and then finally um, you are running a study yeah. Yes, please share about that and as to how people might be able to get involved. Yeah, yeah. so... Um, if you're in here, here in New Zealand, by the way. Yes, yeah. in New Zealand, yeah. unfortunately, in, in person only. Yeah, so um, for my, my PhD thesis, uh, I will be getting um, uh, recruiting the, the public to uh, essentially meditate for 10 minutes a day for eight weeks using mm. an app um, called Smiling Mind, um, which is an amazing research group in Australia who are taking mindfulness into schools um, and they're... they're, they're number one leading health and wellness organization app in Australia. So they're doing some great stuff and they're going to work alongside me um, to produce some hopefully really good quality research. And um, you'll get to do an EEG. So oh, yeah. you get to look at your brainwaves. Um, a select sample will get to hopefully, funding pending, get to mm. do an MRI scan. So you'll get to see a structure of your brain um, potentially. Um, and, uh, yeah, well, essentially you'll, you'll get to see how your brain changes with yeah. 10 minutes a day of meditation, awesome. um, potentially. Yeah. And you'll get a small amount of money. It's just for meditating. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you'll, yeah. Get, you'll get paid for meditating. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which awesome. is always awesome. Um, yeah. but yeah, so once I, um, start advertising that, hopefully it'll be, um, accessible, but otherwise it should be on, um, the university of Auckland website, um, mm. once it gets up and running. So cool. it's always a good place to check up if you're interested in getting involved in research. Yeah. All right. Well, in that yeah. case, what I'll do is I'll put, um, Jody's Instagram in the, um, description below and also the university of Auckland's, um, webpage there as well, um, for those that are interested. Cool. Um, yeah. So thank you for that. Yeah. Cheers. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure to have Jodie on. I've gotten so excited many times as she's been speaking. Um, and I've seen you all eyes light up when we started talking about certain things, which is amazing. I know, but getting me wider. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so um, for um, yeah, those that are interested, please do um, yeah, follow Jodie because, um, yeah, in the, well, I'll say near future, which is, you know, in couple of years time i don't know how long until you're going to be um do a yoga I, teacher be but, um, yeah but eventually especially those in auckland and hopefully you eventually make it into the online world um yeah that sort of stuff is going to be available and i think it's going to be that sort of stuff i think is just going to completely shift the paradigm mm. of the way westerners approach mental health oh, totally. when um, that, it, yeah. that stuff is more like available yeah. and um yeah feasible for people mm. to get um, get involved with so um yeah for those that did find this helpful please 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 um yeah, share it with those that you feel that would benefit from this or even share it on your social media. Um, take a little recording snippet and post on your story, whatever helps. And um, yeah, if you if you either subscribe, review, or um, rate, or you do all three, <laughs> which is great, <laughs> then it really helps us as well reach more people that this sort of stuff benefits. So thank you so much, guys. Uh, once again, um, you guys are absolutely amazing. You guys are the reason why this podcast is even running. Um, so thanks for listening as always. Much love, guys. Aloha, Anna. Take Thank care. you. Yeah. Kia ora.